0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of our Founder Spotlight series, where we dig into the ideas, frameworks, and strategies of the world's best founders. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, I sit down with Andrew Jameson, co-founder and CEO of Extend, which is the world's first virtual card platform that works with every card issuer, which might make you think, what the hell is a virtual card, which is exactly why I wanted to record this episode, because as it turns out, they're incredibly powerful. Virtual cards effectively tokenize a physical card, making it easy to create any number of digital cards, each with advanced controls around everything from spending to geolocation to merchant gating, which enables very powerful uses for a massive number of industries. From helping lawyers and law firms clearly break out expenses by cases and attorneys, to powering food delivery companies like Grubhub and DoorDash so couriers can easily pay for the food they're picking up, to helping travel companies hold thousands of hotel rooms all tied to individual. Virtual cards. In this episode, we cover how virtual cards work and why they're so powerful. We dive into an incredible number of use cases that will open your eyes to just how profoundly this transforms the physical cards that we've all taken for granted. We talk about the incredible origin story of how Andrew and his co founders decided to found Extend, why it took nearly two years to lay all the technical foundation for Extend, and what it's like to sell into some of the world's largest financial institutions. You can find the notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com/100. You can find Extend on Twitter at @paywithextend and online at paywithextend.com. With that, let's dive into the world of virtual cards and what they unlock with Andrew Jameson of Extend. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me on our Founder Spotlight series. I'm thrilled to have you on to talk about what you're building at Extend.
1: No, delighted to be uh, to be on this show. So excited to have the conversation. Thanks Andrew. So I want to start first,
0: super boring, just to, if you can share a quick sketch of your background and then we'll dive into all the fun, interesting
1: stuff. (laughs) It's almost the opposite way around in my life, right? My (laughs) personal life's really interesting. My work life's really dull. Um, No, just in terms of my background, look, fairly diverse. Uh, I actually have an Australian father, a Swedish mother, was born in the UK, but very quickly at the age of 12 months, they made their way over to France where I started my education in a French school till I was 10. And then got punted across to uh, across the channel to go to boarding school in the UK, where I went uh, all the way through and then through to college uh, over there as well. So that sort of gives you a little bit of a, an understanding of the the web that I have in terms of countries and languages.
0: It's a super fascinating background. How has that shown up later in your life? I don't know in dispositions or languages or unique skills.
1: Well, <laughs> I think we have an increasingly global workforce, and what it allows, I think, is to understand sort of the. The nuances between cultures, right? How do the Dutch react versus the British versus the French versus the Germans versus the Americans? It's it's for me, it's just it creates a very interesting lens to look at things, right? Trying to bring in the cultural dimension of, of why they're coming at you from a certain angle or why they have a certain attitude towards certain things. So I, I found from an EQ perspective it's actually been helpful to really have that background. And on the other side it also helps you to be able to engage with people when you can speak in their natural language, if you can start first and, and cobble your way through a sentence, it's still better than, than sort of going straight to English. And, and so it helps to build bridges, even though obviously English is the, the, the global language, just the ability to make that effort, I think, helps to, to create right an, an engagement model where people are more receptive. And so I've always, often taken that as something that's that's important in my personal life, but actually then spills over into, into the world of business. Increasingly, as I've moved around the world and now find myself in the US. Yeah, that's fascinating.
0: The part you left out was that you spent 12 years at American Express, and you know, which is closely related to what you're building at Extend. And one of the questions I wanted to ask there is, you know, that's an enormous period of time to be at one company through what I would imagine is a pretty. Incredible inflection point in technology you know being at a company like American Express over the last twelve years what were some of the biggest evolutions that you saw in kind of credit debit cards banking over that period in time what was your view like from inside American Express
1: so it's really interesting that you know today we talk increasingly of embedded payments right as something that's important in a user experience and we see it every day contextualized right in in our consumer lives whether it's how you grab an uber and payments is embedded you know you you're almost Gone to a point in life where you step out of the car without thinking about payment, and certainly I've done that at a few uh, yellow taxis here in New York. You sort of bowl out, and the guy goes, "You got to pay," and you're like, "Oh, yes, yes, that was the model." And thankfully, they came up with an innovation called Curve, and so now we can do that too uh, without having to think about it. But look, I I had started my career. Look, I've only had three jobs in my whole in my whole career, and I'm now 51, so I guess I've I've, I've been around a, a few years. But you know, the first eight of those were working alongside SAP. I was a consultant deploying the solution. And then I brought what I really knew is really about clients and what cl- it took clients to, to make payments. I was always in the B2B side of the world. I've never been on the consumer side of the world. So it's always been about what does it take for businesses to make payments? And my secret sauce, right, I always say my competitive advantage relative to everyone else at Amex, most folks had come from the consumer side of, of the equation, whereas I had literally been born and bred in terms of how do you integrate things into uh, an ERP and businesses operate off ERP, especially if you're in that Fortune 1000 sort of range, you're operating on big platforms like SAP. And so then I spent 12 years really looking at a landscape where it was no longer about corporate cards because corporate cards had been around for decades. And it was about saying, okay, well, if Amex was going to continue to grow, how do you get into other uh, indirect sp- payment spaces? And the more you went into that space, the more you you realized it was actually reliant on other technologies that weren't actually the card or the payment rails themselves. And so that integration. So for me, that embedded payments journey really started in earnest for me the minute i leapt from ERP into Amex. And look, my first journey with Amex was we went out to buy an electronic invoicing company. Again, the philosophy was simple. See the invoice, see a purchase order, have the first right to finance it. And so the, the, the mind map was already there, and this was back in 2007. 2008. And and Amex was interested in saying, okay, how do I go beyond right, just T&E and how do I help create right, efficiencies across bigger spend? And so that was an interesting journey because they kind of went in with two feet and then very quickly realized, well, that's great, but we're really experts in payments. And so we sort of end up unwinding a lot of that business as part of that journey. But it was, look, that was the big thing around seeing embedded payments, which, which again, just keep going. And then the digitization of the whole experience that started to happen again around digital statements. And we forget that, you know, Apple iPhones and and, and the Samsung phones, they're not really that old, right? In terms of, of how long they've been around. And so how much of it, we now rely on that tool to do so much of our work. It was the beginning of that journey. So for me, that was, that was a great time to be around, right? To experience that conversion from paper and phone to truly digital channels.
0: Yeah well and it aligns really nicely with what you're building at extend which which I want to get into in a second which is basically the first virtual card platform but I want to come to a point we're going to come back around to later in the episode which is talking about you know at a super meta level what cards unlock In a global world where we're all interconnected and we might need to transact at any point in time, you know, and one of the things that you said when we were first talking about, you know, doing this interview was about cards as an instant trust enabler and how powerful that is. Can you just, you know, go super meta for a second and share your, you know, opine on what cards unlock in a global interconnected world and why they matter?
1: Yeah I mean look it's 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 actually amazing uh, and we talked about travel at the beginning of this thing you know between all these different countries and the reality is what people forget is you can be living here and known by your local community and your local bank but you can at the same time be somewhere else across the world in Australia where you know nobody and you pull out your card and you can make a purchase and people let you walk out with the goods it is quite simply incredible to think that trust is created right there and then because you present a piece of plastic right it's essentially it's as good as cash and that's an incredible thing to have created and it happens in a split second there's instant trust created between you and the person on the other side of, of the counter and and a lot of people say oh you know well cards you know cards are going to move on cards are dead well i don't know how many other platforms are there today where in a fraction of a second you create instant trust and i think people massively underestimate what it is that mastercard and also visa and amex have created right in creating that ecosystem that network that allows for that for that seamless right establishment of trust
0: yeah well it's almost like you know a kind of global interconnected world where we're all trading with one another really wouldn't exist without something like that and it was also interesting you know as you were saying that obviously these are enormously valuable you know, kind of platforms and, uh, and, you know, pieces of infrastructure. But it is somewhat funny that, you know, it's all enabled by this, what maybe costs two cents to produce a piece of plastic that you carry around in your wallet. It's fascinating.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it used to probably cost two cents and then it goes up and up, right? Because you have to layer in security layers, right? Yeah, Because yeah. all these different things. So it's, it's interesting as we get as we progress with technology, right, the folks who, who, who want to do something nefarious just get more and more sophisticated. And that's uh, you know, just, just the world we live in today. And so security is forefront of anything you try and do now on, on a digital layer, because frankly, it's, that's everyone's biggest fear is your brand somewhat relies on the fact that you have to have security as an underpinning, because it's really a matter of, of when, not if. Right. There's something's going to go wrong and you just have to have that mindset.
0: Yeah. Well, it also feels like as the world becomes more digital, you know, I'm thinking, as I say this, obviously about, you know, crypto and DeFi, you know, as you, these become almost purely digital experiences that trust, but especially security becomes more and more and more important Just <laughs> because one, I don't know, there's less, there's less to grasp onto.
1: It's harder to understand. It's a little bit more opaque. Interesting to think about. <laughs> no, look, I think there's tremendous excitement on these, on these other payment rails, it's just that, unfortunately, the average consumer on the high street, like, can't doesn't know how quite to interact with it, right? And it's still, you know, the fact that people are thinking of it as like, well, if I invest in it, it's like tells you straight away it's a commodity. It's very different to to a currency, which which unless you know something major happens, right, like a war that just erupted, right, and and obviously that has a big impact on on the ruble and other things. But otherwise, right, as far as currencies, everyone sort of knows them as a fairly stable. Um, certainly in the, in the Western economy, they've been very stable for quite some time. And I think that's why people are struggling to grasp it. you can't walk into a bank and pull cash out. How, how do you get cash? It's all a little bit too digital. Um, but we have to just remember, well, this is such an early part of that journey as well. And, and look, it's all about people trying to get into the market and figure out what the next evolution is. But it's not the first time people have tried another ev- evolution and there'll be some failures along the way before we get to to really the next big milestone and we still don't know what that next big milestone is but but there's a lot of excitement as to what it might be um and that's the i think that's that's really what people are chasing yeah it's like
0: exploring the problem space and the opportunity space of what that next evolution could look like. And it's messy and it's chaotic and no one actually has a clue where it's all going, but we're all trying to participate. So I want to dive into what you're building at Extend, And, you know, this this was one of my favorite episodes to prep for because I feel like I had to learn a lot to be able to hopefully somewhat competently speak about what you're doing. Because at the high level, it's very simple. You could just say the first virtual card platform for any card issuer. But, you know, then I think there's layers and layers of, okay, well, what does that actually mean? what does that unlock? And so I was going to try, I'm going to try my best. Hopefully I won't embarrass myself to describe what you're building. And then, um, I'd love it if you could jump in and help flesh it out a little bit more. But at the highest level, you know, it's you're effectively a software layer that can sit on top of any card issuer. So customers can turn one physical card into many virtual cards. And we'll talk about what that unlocks and and why that's interesting. And to do that, you know, you've basically created enterprise software for developers at banks and card issuers and financial institutions. But then you also actually have a consumer side of the business where you've built an extend iOS app. And so it's almost, you know, you're building the the tools for developers in these financial institutions, but then you're also threading that experience all the way through kind of the end consumer. Do I have that right? And can you maybe flesh that out and help
1: people understand how the, all those pieces fit together? <laughs> I think you're hired, right? We're looking for another product uh, product leader. So that's it. You're done. Um, no, look, look. you're absolutely right. And it, look, it's like everything's simple. It's mired in complexity because actually the hard part of making something simple is making it simple. But the reality is exactly that. We've, we've just created really a digital ecosystem that sits around aging infrastructure. Because a lot of the financial services companies have been around for a long time, and a lot of that infrastructure ain't exactly new. But again, it's worked very well. It's very well embedded in, in many different places. The problem is it's constrained. It's constrained because it wasn't designed with the digital era in mind. So it's all about actually, how can someone take on the, the, the work of creating those integration points into these old platforms. And then on the other side of that digital world is, is really flexibility. And that's what we've done is created sort of the flexible tools by doing you know three, four years worth of work, right, to get these integrations going with these key strategic partners of the banks so that now they have an ecosystem, a tool set, that essentially they can put in front of their clients. And because the clients that, of these banks are increasingly tech savvy, And they know how to do things really quickly. And they're they're only being slowed down by the fact that the banks weren't really opening up these digital channels. So that was our our core part of the journey was to say, okay, how do we bring those tools? Because the bank can't rip out these old platforms and just replace it with something that is new, because it's not just about that. It's about how those platforms are integrated into an end-to-end customer experience, right? How do I receive a statement? How do I pay down against my statement? How do I query a charge? How do I get a new card? All these are different platforms, and they've they've taken a long time to create what that end to end user experience looks like, so it, you have to work within within that construct i'd say before we came around, many people were just saying, "Oh the hell with it I'm just going to wipe this the table clean and start with a whole new fresh ecosystem, which has worked really well because at the same time we came at an era when neo banks were emerging neo Card issuers were emerging. And so they were like, well, we're starting from scratch anyway. So brilliant. Let's find what this best in breed technology might look like. But then they're faced with a different problem, which is like, great, now they have to figure out acquisition of clients. And, <laughs> and we all know that's not difficult. And and our bet to some degree was look, the underlying relationship between clients and banks just it's not that broken. Right? It was just missing some of these key tools. And, and so we made a contrarian bet and saying, actually, I think just overlaying new digital capabilities is going to be more appealing to clients than for them having to start afresh with a whole new relationship, right? With a card issuer or a bank.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating because uh, yeah, I, I I get the desire to wipe the slate clean. I feel like any technologist, especially someone founding a startup is like, yeah, absolutely. Cause they have such disdain and they also haven't had the experience that you've had, which is being in these institutions. And I think realizing being on the other side of the table and, and to your point, feeling like you've put in a lot of work. Yes. You, you can't, maybe you don't have all the tools to deliver this experience that you want to deliver, but there's a lot of stuff you have right. And you don't want to mess that up. And I don't know, just this idea of playing with the sandbox that already exists as opposed to trying to wipe it out and create a new one is fascinating.
1: There's a lot of things in the sandbox, right, which you can't get around, right? Compliance and sanctions and, and some of the regulation when it comes to moving money and doing different payment flows. And so my view is all those are there, they're utilities, right? So why don't I want to recreate them, right? The concept of ledgering for the fact you made a transaction and it appears in your statement, again, that's kind of a utility. And so... You have to spin your wheel so hard to get all these other utilities up to speed. My, my view was that in itself doesn't necessarily make sense if you want to have the broadest impact on an existing client base. And so that was really the, the bet was to say, no, we will have the broadest impact. It's going to be a much harder journey for the first four years because I, I have to deal with technical debt. And technical debt right is every IT person's nightmare. And it's every business person's nightmare, because every time you try and budget for something, it sort of racks up into the millions before you even you know, got started. And I think that's the frustration that business folks have is every time they try and touch these platforms, it's, it's millions and millions and millions of dollars. And the way that these financial institutions actually like any big company is set up is the investment cycles are too long. Um, and frankly... The justifications are, are just too massive. And then the funds you get are too small. And certainly that's been the case for the last, I'd say, 10 years, where we've had a pretty good run at it from a ventures standpoint right, and a private equity standpoint because they've lent in as well. And so it's just been a flow of funds and it's been quite an unfair competition because you had a lot of emerging fintechs with really, really deep pockets. And some of the sort of older players in the marketplace had to go through their traditional investment cycles. And yes, Try to make them faster and try to make them you know more flexible, but we're talking orders of magnitude of a hundred x difference in funding that drops to your bottom line, and effectively that you're allowed to go and use for innovation right yeah. when in reality, the fintechs have little to no revenue, right versus the banks have a ton of revenue but they have return most of it to shareholders so it's it's an odd place to be in, and I compared it to my life at, at American Express which here was a company dropping billions of dollars to the bottom line. So they're not short of funding, right? But the reality is a lot of of their investment then comes in for compliance projects. It then comes in for, for some discrete projects, but they can't guarantee the funding will last for two, three, four, five years because there'll be a change of leadership, a change of direction. And so it doesn't play well in the technology world where you kind of got to be all in all the time because things are becoming much, much more siloed in terms of, what is the problem you're fixing from a tech perspective? And you've you've got to be at the pinnacle of the game where you're just going to fall so far behind. It's just not worth investing in it.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating perspective. I want to hear you talk a little bit more about those first four years. And, you know, specifically, I think to try to understand a little bit better the tooling that you were building out at that time and some of the integrations there so that people get, I guess, maybe the size, the scope, maybe the ambition of of what you had to build before you could really
1: come to market. <laughs> So look, there's just been a lot of players that have come into the market, and, and one of the obvious ones, right, is, is Marquetta that's been out there, and, but then there's been others, right, I2C, Galileo's done more on the sort of the, the, the you know, banking side of the world, and, and really the education they, they taught us all was, you know, if you want to bring a compelling suite of capabilities to market, it's really from lots of different service providers, and so the new model was very much more of, hey, I don't want point-to-point connections, I want to have one aggregator that can deliver all of these services through a simple suite of APIs. And, and so that's kind of the, the aha moment, right, that they came to, to that conclusion. If you're going to embed payments, you need all these other services involved in it. And so really the first four years were sort of saying, okay, who are the strategic partners to the banks? And then what are the capabilities they're falling short on? So it was really about, you know, how does a startup create relationships with Visa, MasterCard, Amex, and then the sort of the, the giant in the card issuing business, certainly on the commercial side, and, and the largest on the consumer side too, which is t How do you as a startup earn a right to go into these big old blue chip companies and really earn the right to say, no, 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 we're building something for the future. Trust me, believe me, we're, we're going to get there. And it's about getting access to their technology to say, we are going to build a better world for you and with you, was really what this was about. And then once we had sort of built in those connections, and obviously there's a long contracting process, right? There's just the reality of the world. Then only then can you start to say, great, I now have the foundations where I can build user experiences, whether it's you know for the web or for mobile, iOS and Android. And so it's really been an evolution. And I think one of the biggest discoveries for us along the way, which I hadn't on to, was actually one of the things that fintechs do really well is make onboarding frictionless. And so I, you know, three and a half years into the journey, we were like, you know, this platform works great when you're up and running, but to get up and running is a nightmare. And then we had to sort of realize, like, actually, we've, we've got the onboarding model completely wrong because we're not better than than the emerging players. And it's still too much friction for the corporate. It's still too much friction for the banks, which is why they failed to grow. And then that's when the penny dropped, which was like, hang on a second. Actually, all of these customers already have everything they have in their possession today, which is they have either a laptop, right, for for web or they have a phone for access to mobile capabilities and they have a piece of plastic in their pocket. How about we start the journey with the piece of plastic that they already have, right, and there's tens of millions of those already in circulation. So how about we make that really simple and make that journey all of about a five-minute experience through which we enable existing cardholders with these new digital capabilities with everything they already have in their possession, and that 's really what sort of allowed us to finally unlock the potential and to finally start growing at scale um, and because we 'd actually solved the biggest pain point, which is friction and adoption
0: well, I also love that. You know, you just as a company and you could be, uh, I don't know, you're intellectually open enough and honest enough to know when to beg, borrow and steal a good idea that somebody else has, as opposed to, you know, trying to and, and understanding, you know, this really careful balance of you're both taking a very different fundamental strategic approach to the business, but you're still recognizing when to kind of borrow this playbook here and there. I think it's kind of fascinating.
1: I think it's, at the end of the day, right, they built that playbook to go and serve new and emerging companies, right, where there's Uber and other businesses that, that had just, frankly, different needs, right? They were part of this new generation of, of services. But what I realized more than anything, else, was like, that's great. So you build them for that ecosystem. But there's a whole slew of companies that love access to digital capabilities and they've just been starved of those, of those capabilities. So it was about saying, okay, what about everyone else? And so my view is is I want to serve everyone else. And over time, right, it's a big question is what do companies do when they become the size of an Uber or Grubhub and suddenly they're international? And so who's going to be their bank at some point servicing them internationally? And that's where it gets to be really interesting is saying, okay, well, surely they're going to gravitate back towards the big international multinational players. So surely that's their destination because they can't operate with their existing providers Right, across all these international markets because those players don't have a presence there.
0: I want to talk for uh, I want to go a little bit further and talk about what virtual cards unlock because I I do think it's it's fascinating just understanding some of the different use cases. And at a high level, one of them, you know, say I, I run a business, I can take my Amex card and I can create virtual cards for either departments. I can create virtual cards for people on my team. Which, you know, unlocks a bunch of things and each of these can have its own spend limit. And so you're effectively taking one monolithic card and turning it into many small cards. Am I missing anything there? And, you know, is there a, how do you tell that story to your customers around taking one card and then, you know, digitally <laughs> creating, say, five or 10 cards out of that?
1: Yeah, so again, I think it spans the gamut of small companies. Typically, are sort of sitting there going, "I don't want to give cards to anybody because I'm a small business, I'm a mom and pop business." But even as you grow to sort of twenty five, thirty, forty people, right? You've typically grown because you've kept a very tight eye on your finances, and so it's always everyone's always wary of giving cards out to employees as you grow your business, um, and so it's really about saying, "Okay, but I understand the concern." Now, how, as opposed to giving someone a card that always has a balance on it month after month after month, how about if you now say, "Well, I give you a card for today, I give you a card for this week, I give you a card and by the way, I could adjust the limit based on my degrees of comfort right whether it's for it's a hundred dollars today for you to go and buy x subs- subscription it's two thousand dollars next month because you're going to pay for a conference access it's you know depending on what their business model is right that's the early parts of it and and so Bigger companies have often had much more flexibility around who they hand cards to. Again, bigger businesses, and therefore they have more degrees of security because they have policies and procedures in place, et cetera, et cetera. Then you start going into actual businesses who are sort of are just not running as as operationally efficiently as as they would like to. Right. So, a good use case for us is let's assume that that somehow, unfortunately, your house got burned down. Now you call your insurance company. Now you need to go and stay in a hotel. How does that insurance company provide and provision a payment to that hotel to basically say, it's okay, Daniel, you can now go stay at that property. It's paid for. So you sort of end up with these, you know, you have a policy with you, but they don't have a method to then go and make these payments on your behalf. And so a lot of it was going on invoice. It's very inefficient. So what if now they can tie every virtual card to your policy number? And now when the card charge comes through, they can tie it back to a policy. And so you create massive efficiency under a really strict and tight control that allows to ensure that, that everything is working the way it's supposed to and people aren't misusing or abusing, again, because you can start to lock where these cards can be used, right? And you also limit the damage because you're now assigning a, a, a specific amount of credit against, right, the charges that, that, you're about, that are about to be incurred. So there's some efficiency plays, there's some control plays that will that come into play here.
0: Yeah. One of the other, maybe second, third order effects that, you know, kind of was apparent to me is also that you get much, much better data, you know, because just like having a business with, say, five departments and all of it's running through one card, that is not as good as having five cards that you can basically split between the departments. And then you know exactly which department is charging with expense, you know, what expense. And, you know, yes, there are ways to solve that. Typically, it's done with a lot of accounting work after the fact. <laughs> so, literally, you're just playing detective, trying Trying to go through your bank statements and figuring it out. And so, you know, it's just fascinating to me that here you have something that the surface seems very simple. And yet some of the second and third order effects seem really massive. Like for myself, being able to take a, you know, an Amex gold card and turn it into five cards for different businesses or different projects, I think is fascinating. Is that a, you know, do you think of data
1: as an advantage and do customers think of data as an advantage as well? Massively, because there's only so many places that, that essentially the existing card providers can store data today. And it's usually linked to your profile, right? It's linked to the merchant, right? And they'll give data. And so the, the limits are, what have you got on your profile? And, and what if, what do we can gather from the merchant? And, and then we'll shoehorn that into our platform. And that's the data you have. But the reality is, when you now have the ability to hand the reins over to the cardholder and say, you decide who you send it to. Do you want to put their email address on there? Do you want to put a reference number on there? Do you want to add essentially a booking number on there? Now, all that data flows through with the transaction. And so you have much richer data. And so you have much better insights. You have a better uh, way of assigning charges. I'll give you a great example. I was actually flying back last week from London because I attended the commercial payments international CPI conference uh, over there because we're about to launch into, into Europe. And next to me, I sat next to a lawyer. And and I don't know how we started the conversation, because usually these days you're wearing your mask and you kind of get into your own business, but we had to swap seats and and before you know it, we started chatting and and she started asking me, you know, what I was doing in London and and I explained to her, I was there for a payments conference. I explained to her a little bit of of what I did and she's she was like, Oh look, I I do a lot of different employment law for fintechs who are trying to bring resources from Canada, right, to, to these different markets. She says, I have an absolute nightmare tracking now essentially all of the charges that I incur on my amex card, I was like mm, hello what's what 's happening here right so sales pitch is about to happen and I sort of i'd say i ju- i 'm not here to sell you anything, but let me explain to you right the 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 value that you 're not unlocking today with the existing Amex card that you have, which is as you do all these court filings, you can now assign an individual 's profile number and essentially any other data related to the company. So it's like I can therefore tag it as it's Andrew Jamison and it's for company XY who's moving employee from Canada to, to the US or from Europe to the US. And now you have an easy way every time a charge comes through, an easy way to rebuild your clients for all of the filing costs, right, that you essentially are incurring. It's just, oh, my goodness. she said, you you don't understand. I have an army of people today that are charging against these department cards, and we have no idea and someone it's it's almost like you have to reach out into the ecosystem and say, "Okay, who charged on this day for this particular thing and it's just hugely inefficient and we've we 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 already know we had a vertical in the legal space because today too many people were sharing cards, and so they weren't getting the data so actually just being able to actually put in the name of the client or the name of a project or both onto a card suddenly you have transparency and suddenly you get huge efficiencies in their business because Every month, it's almost the charges are pre-allocated out to clients. And so there's complete transparency and there's huge efficiency to them. So that's you know, just to give you a sense of, of how, how that plays out and how important data is to these clients.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating example. I want to talk about one other that you brought up before, which is Grubhub. And you know, the idea that obviously for companies that have contractors, I mean I guess the model is actually very similar to what you just described. So with with Grubhub, they have the problem of obviously couriers are going to pick up orders, how are they going to pay for those orders? And being able to tokenize cards, you know, is a fascinating example there. Talk about the kind of platform, you know, contractor use case just a bit more.
1: Look, I think you know all of these companies that are supporting these food delivery businesses, but again a, a lot of it is is from a different type of workforce, right These are you know folks who come and maybe work for a month and then they're off you know and they may be doing it during vacations and so you have a very transient workforce, and so the idea that you're going to give them an actual physical card is somewhat challenged and so they want to have something, A, that you can get from A to B. And by the way, we, we don't support that business today, but it's something we're looking at. But, but again, it's a really interesting use case because that whole gig economy, it's an economy where you have to get something provisioned to that individual really quickly so they can start working really quickly. And then you need to have all the controls in place, right, which basically says, okay, well, is Andrew at this location to pick up a specific order. Is Andrew even on shift at this particular time? And so you have all these control parameters that you want to apply before, you know, when a card is is actually swiped, right, or inserted or tapped. That effectively opens a window that says, does this make sense? Is Andrew meant to have picked up an order from this location right in this timeframe? And that's a whole different technology than how cards have operated in the past, which is typically on a profile. It's if you think of when your card gets declined, it's because you're going off your profile. You know, maybe you suddenly landed in a country that the card provider didn't expect you to be in, and now you charge your card. And I think, well, that's got to be fraud. It's having that additional context and, and being able to use that information at the point at which you decision a transaction, right? That's where some of the greatest innovations are happening right now, which is the ability to open that window for companies to decide, yes or no, does should this transaction go through? Don't let it the bank that decides it or the card networks that make that decision on your behalf, you'll take the risk because you have the system that tells you that Andrew is on shift, is in the right place, charging the right amount. So yes, that charge will go through. It should never get declined, right? Even if a pattern of spend might say to you, man, it looks like it should be declined, right? So it's the sophistication that we're getting to is what is so exciting. And obviously, that's in that sort of um, gig economy construct. But you can see how that's going to spill over into consumer and to all these different things, right? The controls you'll be able to give to your kids' cars or, or, or cars that you may issue to to your parents overseas, you know if, if you happen to be repatriating cash to family that's overseas. the controls are just going to are getting to be so much more intelligent, and the nice thing is you're actually now giving a digital product to someone that's that's incredibly usable but transparent, and so it's no longer cash. And I remember that's one of the big things someone said to me, like nothing good really happens with cash. Right? And so the idea that you can start phasing cash out is actually a really good thing, right? Because of the regulations that sit around it. And and it does provide that ultimate transparency. And so we should all be in favor of seeing that digital economy really continue to, to blossom.
0: Yeah. Well, I love, I'm sure from that experience, you now have multiple other items that have been added to your roadmap in terms of functionality. So I want to ask one kind of clarifying question, which is, you know, so you obviously, your model is all about serving existing financial institutions and helping deliver, you know, digital capabilities that they wouldn't be able to have otherwise. But one thing that's interesting to think about, and obviously wouldn't necessarily make sense strategically, but I just want to bring it up and kind of discuss it is, you know, you are not a card issuer. Was that ever, a decision you considered and decided against or was that something from day one you were like no it's not the model we're providing tools for card issuers
1: so i think it's it, it's a great question uh, and it's you wouldn't be the first one to ask it but it's because everyone sees what what these neo card issuers have been able to achieve in a really short period of time and it's and it's quite amazing the challenge for me though is is it's easy to ramp initially but then you hit sort of certain headwinds but what i've also noticed is so many people who played on both sides right who on the one hand were their own issuer and, and separately they tried to partner up and buddy up with with other with other banks more traditional banks who were doing issuance is it, it created a very confusing message and the confusing message is, is this what happens when i've been able to move my issuing capabilities faster than the bank partners that I have, which by definition is going to happen because a bank partner will hold you up on a couple of things, say, Well, I'm not quite ready to do this launch, but you, I'm ready. So you'll go. What happens when that client says, Well, hang on, I see this capability exists on your own issuing business. What happens then? And what happens is they start to steal clients going over. And very quickly, the other issuers is that say, Well, hang on, I've just let you in. It's like letting the line into the zoo. And you basically said, Well, I've just let you come in there. And so, a lot of traditional issues have been burnt in that and so i've made it very clear from the beginning and i saw it firsthand even when i was at amex that i was like i can't be both sides of of the equation and i need to be very careful that that i'm not because it will create a conflict that, that i can never get over and so for me it's always been no we will never be an issuer and i've made that really explicitly clear to all the issues we work with, but also others who've, who've who've come to me and said, like, we'll be your sponsor bank, we'll help you set up your infrastructure and platform. I'm like, that's great. And yes, I'll get a short-term massive injection of growth, but it's gonna come at huge cost downstream. So I'm like, no, I'm sticking to the journey of, you know, these are hard yards with issues, because they make decisions quickly, right? That's just part of being a big company and a conservative company, because I'm dealing with money. But I think it's the right path. Uh, and we're seeing we're seeing now four years, five years actually down the line. We're we're seeing some really big traction coming through, and so the prospect of of wanting to be my own issuer is rapidly dissipating because we're seeing now the sort of the fruits of the labor coming through. But yeah, the, you know there are times when you wonder, am I going down the right path? Just because it's hard, it's you know convincing these these juggernauts to move. But we've also found ways of making life easier, right? And so some of the ways we've made life easier is they were always terrified at this, as banks to onboard you as a, as a client because it was an 18-month, sometimes two-years process. And so that was something which we sold for because we started contracting through card networks like MasterCard, and we're working with one of the biggest processors right, to also be able to contract through them so that now the banks contract through an existing strategic partner. We're just a statement of work that slots in underneath it, and it's just a matter of weeks, not months and years before we can get up and running. So there's things you have to do. We'd already solved for the tech part, right? It doesn't require issuers to do any tech work when we launch with them. So you're just going to knock knock off the challenges as you go. But no, the message is clear, right? We will partner with uh, traditional issuers. We will not go out and issue.
0: Yeah. I mean, I love the strategic clarity there because obviously, of course, you know, if you were to become an issuer, incentives aren't aligned. But I love the point you made as well, too, that it makes it so that you can't possibly tell a clean story (laughs) that other people can wrap their heads around, which I think is even a better way of stating the same thing. But I also love, you know, just hearing you kind of talk about that and talk about a neobank, you know, seeing this fast ramp and the approach you've taken. It's almost like you guys have spent four years pulling back the slingshot. (laughs) And then when you launch it, you know, you can maybe jettison yourself up, up the growth curve, and you now have a much, 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 much bigger market to serve. And so I think it's just a fascinating example of, you know, just a very different strategy and, and you know, how interesting that is in a competitive space.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, what's interesting as well is, is it had an impact on our fundraising. I'd say, you know, our seed was, was, a tough, was a tough negotiation. Our series A was a tough negotiation. Our series B, on the other hand, was, was a, just a much better story for us. And it wasn't just because it was a massive influx of capital happening. It was also because people started to see that the strategy and the light at the end of the tunnel, like, hang on a second. I think also infras- bank infrastructure plays became way more right attractive to investors because they realized there is a clear monification path in in that particular space. It isn't the case of, I have a ton of users, I promise you I'll find a way of modifying them over time. And then sure, sure as hell, they, they never actually materialized. This people actually saw and said, No, I can see how you can monetize this. Yeah, it'll be it'll be small monetization. But the potential scale is great because there are hundreds of millions of cards in circulation. And the big evolution that they got their head around was, oh, I get it. You've turned what was a product in an end of itself, virtual cards, into a feature of the hundreds of million cards that are already in circulation. And so suddenly people were like, that makes sense because actually. That's how I'd want my bank customer to think of me as, you know, I reach into, into my wallet and I can pull out my card and, and I'm off, right? I, I'm, it takes me five minutes and I get access to all of this. And that's kind of the way that banks want to engage with their clients is just continuing to show them innovation without them having to change anything in their diet, basically. Yeah. As,
0: yeah, speaking as a consumer, that's what I love. I love it when I don't have to change a thing. It <laughs> just gets better and better and better.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's everyone's ultimate dream, right? I think we've all gone to a place of fatigue, right? When it's sort of something net new, net new, net new. It's like there's nothing, there's not always something good that comes out of something net new.
0: No, no, but there is always work. And I think that's- So people see through and (laughs) see right to the work. I want to ask, you know, two questions around, I think, unique parts of your model. And one of them is that obviously what you're building is software centric. Was your role at American Express software centric? And, you know, if so, what was it like, you know, to move to extend where you're basically in a lot of ways building developer toolkit and, you know, an API and thinking much more code forward?
1: So look, I think I've always been on that side of the equation. I mean, even when I was uh, working alongside SAP as a consultant, I was always trying to help and understand what was the end game that the company was doing. And SAP and all the ERPs got a bit of a bad rap at one point, which is, you know, I just replaced my old system with this new system and it doesn't seem to work that much better. And it's like, well, if you put your old IT staff onto this project, they probably try to replicate what they had before in a new technology and therefore it didn't work. So it was all about... No, no, no. You need to get the business folks to step in, right? And then you can actually design something for the future. And I applied the same principle when I went and joined American Express. And again, I, I went into their commercial division. I came at, at I guess which was a really interesting inflection point. We'd come through the sort of e-commerce sort of bubble and e-procurement was was really growing. And so everyone understood already that more of these technology tools were going to be at the heart of how businesses make decisions and therefore how they're gonna to have to pay for things. So I I took that approach and I was really handed a really unique opportunity when we bought this e-invoicing company down in Atlanta, which is, how about you go build a startup inside a really big company? And the reason why it was a startup was, look, I spent my first two and a half years here in the US pretty much commuting to Atlanta. And I was really operating as a consultant within Amex. And it's odd because I swore I was going to leave consulting, never go back. And here I was being a consultant. But it was great because it was a journey of sort of like a looking at the technology that they had, understanding that because we hit the financial crisis, right, we we were not going to focus right on on parts of businesses that were not going to return the type of returns that we needed. So we ended up killing off the invoicing piece and just keeping the payment engine. And then I had to go and rebuild it from scratch and I was able to bring in some of my former SAP uh, colleagues in because we were like, no, 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 no. We need to think outside of a mainframe mindset. So I'd already started to do that. So I was always much more on that software side. I mean, I, I'm not a coder. I did six months of coding. When I started with SAP, very quickly realized that was never where I was going. But it taught me all of the foundational pillars of how you need to think if you're going to build scalable software. And I've just used that right over the years. And and that helped me inside of, of Amex. I said so that was my competitive advantage was understanding that mindset. And it just handed me more and more tools to play with. And one of the ones was actually the virtual card capabilities that we actually uh, bought from GE back in 2009. So I had my first taste of virtual cards in 2009. It was a small business for Amex back in the day, but it grew, right? We grew that thing really fast to 30x what it was in five years. And and that really helped me to understand the value of virtual cards. Now, it was in the context of enterprise clients, right? It was massive volume for companies like Orbit and Expedia, who were securing people's bookings, in hotel properties, not on your card that you gave them, right when you paid for, it, for for the service, but actually how they were holding bookings, right with the hotel properties in the background, and so that had me had me spinning. But the reality is, I also didn't leave Amex to create Extend, right? That came 15 months further down the line when I finally decided what I was going to do post Amex. That was a very different journey for me, one that I completely had not anticipated. I thought I would go back into the workforce. Back into a, a you know a large bank or, or or potentially into a completely different line of business. Really, the the extend opportunity sort of developed over time, and suddenly I decided that's what I wanted to do. And I would luckily had the support of my wife to say no, if that's that's what you should go and do. And so off I went on that journey. Was there a tipping point
0: as you were in that fifteen month period where you were finally like, okay, yes, I need to go build this
1: now, or I need to start this now? <laughs> it was a good uh, say ten eleven months. And look, one of the things I've shared with many people I, I left Amex because of my mother's health. My mother suffered from cancer since I was ten, and it happened at twenty and thirty and forty and so she she was a trooper because she was she was a true survivor, the definition of a survivor, but this was the end of a journey, and it's it's interesting i even though I was whatever it was back then forty three forty four forty five you sort of think you've grown and you should know what you want and and, and you should feel feel unencumbered. The reality is I didn't have the freedom that I think I needed to, to be able to go and do this. I think I'd just been trained in enterprise. And as my former boss, Amex, says, every time I went to meetings, he says, these are great ideas. I can see clients are very responsive to you, but you know you make my hair hurt every time we go into a meeting. And she's like, there's a beauty in simplicity. And so the, the irony is I sort of took a lot of that experience of like, I've lived in a land of complex. There is a more simple way of doing things. And then it was just like, do you have the courage and conviction that you can go and build this yourself? And for me, that was, you know, life's not a dress rehearsal. And it's, look, it's, as I said, like none of this is possible at my age with two kids. And when you think about education and, and college and those things, right, unless you, you have someone who's there supporting you, right? And, and the reality is my wife was that support, right? She had a great job and and had the conviction that this was going to be our thing. But trust me, as a CFO... She set some pretty clear milestones for me. <laughs> she gave you a
0: virtual card and metered out your expenses.
1: <laughs> it was, trust me, I was like, if you don't hit this milestone by then, you're packing up. If you're not hitting this milestone, you're packing up. Because she made the right assessment, which is these are, to, to some extent, right, the most productive years in your career. And so, you know, you don't want to throw it all away just on, on a whim of, of, of an idea. It has to be a good idea. And that's where the practical, pragmatic thing comes into play. And look, that's where having a great, Uh, network of mentors along the way many of which are former you know Amex alumni people from my old uh, sap career days right who who essentially kept me on the rails right in those first three to four years but were instrumental really in that sort of once i decided 11 months 12 months in that this is actually the journey i wanted to take were really instrumental and sort of helped me create the sort of the what are the founding pillars and what did i want this company to represent what did i want the team that we were going to build? What, how did I want to embody that team? And what were the values right, that I wanted to bring into the company so that you know, we could be competitive despite being little tech right? in a world of really big tech who could offer massive salaries? How was I going to convince people to come and join us in this tiny little company? And it had a lot to do with, with really the way we thought about building a team uh, and really what we wanted to embody. Amen to your wife and to all the husbands and wives out there, <laughs> founders.
0: Because the truth is, I think anyone with a significant other building a company or embarking on building a company needs a thousand percent support. <laughs> because it's the you know it's it's a massive challenge.
1: Well, I think that's why you know typically folks are twenty two, twenty 24, twenty four. They're they're unafraid, right? And they've, there's nothing there for them to have to worry too much about by bar, bar themselves. And I think that's that's obviously why that you have that that freedom. Uh, but that rapidly starts to move away. Okay, I want to ask a couple closing questions. You know, one
0: was around that transition of, so you spend, well, you know, you have SAP, you have Amex, both of these are large companies. And then, you know, you have this kind of transition period, but then you're on the other end of the spectrum where it's a hyper small company, hyper small team, you know, you're building. What surprised you the most about founding and scaling a startup after that experience, you know, so many years at larger companies? And, you know, I think what I'm looking for there is like, what surprised you positively and maybe what surprised you negatively about just being in a different environment, you know, a different end of the scale?
1: Yeah. So look, I I guess I had two helping hands along the way, right? Number one is my father was an entrepreneur in a very different space like shop fitting equipment for supermarkets and hypermarkets in France right it's like it's about shelving it doesn't get less sexy than that but it was it was a grind right and so i knew at least i knew what i was in for right in terms of the commitment the weekends and and those sort of things so that bit was was fairly familiar to me i had also seen the benefits of of having done a startup with an amex right in terms of this company in atlanta that okay i i could see how you could get this done and then for me the key was I couldn't, I, I I was, I don't know how people would ever do this on their own. So actually having really two founding partners in my mind, it's interesting across the investor community, they were like, you can't have 2 you, you'll dilute yourselves in equity too quickly. This never works. And I was like, well, hang on a second. It depends on who, if you're three sales guys setting it up or three marketeers. So yeah, I get it. You're, you're kind of overlapping each other. But I was really lucky in that, you know, in Danny, who's a great friend of my wife's for many years, He he really was really a, a a sort of full stack engineer with really a preference around design and specifically iOS. And then Guillaume I had someone who had worked with at Amex, and we both funnily enough spent twelve years there, who was a strategist and worked in the in a strategy office for the then CEO Ken Chenault, and then had worked in ops and how we integrated new startups in, into into Amex. So really three separate legs of a stool. And so instant trust. And and what I loved about it was there was instant trust. And I didn't have to second guess it, right? I, I knew these two individuals really well. We knew we could get in our swim lane. We knew we were all in our 40s. And so we could cut corners from experience standpoint, and we wouldn't fall down some of the pitfalls. The hardest thing was for me was, was getting commitment from investors initially, right? Because I, I begged and borrowed to get budgets right in a large company. But you kind of do it in a fairly safe way because you have a, you know, you have a salary and you've been around for a while. And so you're doing very well and life's pretty comfortable, actually. And here we were sort of bootstrapping it for the first year, not paying ourselves and bumping our head against against brick wall after brick wall, which is kind of like you come out of large corp, You wouldn't know how to do this. And then say, well, you've also never created a startup. So it's been like, well, those two things kind of go hand in hand. And that was really hard, uh, th- those those initial, I'd say, 18 months, trying to convince people that, y- yes, you were industry experts, yes, you had right a great vision as to where the platforms could be, even though you kind of lived in the old, you kind of knew where the future was going. That's probably the most demoralizing side for me was was someone who I thought you were trusted, suddenly you went in a world where it was like, yeah, I don't, I don't trust you because you've never done it before. And so ironically, right, the path to our success was getting friends and family to invest, right? And that's why I now understand that. It's like, actually, investors want to see that your friends and family wouldn't take a bet on you before they stick their dollars in. And then number two was was really about, you know, could we show them a couple of milestones really quickly? And, and fortunately, yeah, we were able to show a couple of milestones really quickly. And the irony is, is now, it's, now it's funny. Every investor we talk to is like, well, you guys are experts in this space, right? So it's almost... Well, it's now five years, and so we're now part of that trusted ecosystem of folks. But you have to earn your stripes, and that's really hard from someone who who comes from a decently successful career. And so, so that sometimes is, is probably the hardest hump to get over. And you just got to keep backing yourself.
0: Yeah, I mean that's not uncommon.
1: And so I'm
0: glad you're, you know, willing to open up about it and share it because I, you know, one, I think a lot of investors struggle early on. And so it's, but it's often not talked about. So it's good that you're talking about it. So thanks for, thanks for sharing that. But I, you know, I think it does just go to show you too, that one of the favorite perspectives I like to share with founders that feel like they're struggling is just the the fact that companies are built in in stages and in chapters. And, you know, because I think number one, it kind of lets them know that you might just be going through a funky, challenging bit at this moment in time. That
1: doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. (laughs) You know, it's a, it's a finite moment in time. On that one side, I would say, look, the, the one interesting part is when we did raise money, right, we were really good stewards of capital, right? And I think that's the difference was we didn't get enlightened because suddenly we had 10 million or suddenly we have, right, uh, the 40 million from the last round. It's the one thing is we have we've know how hard it is to get the dollars, and, but we also know that you get dollars because you have to stand on your own two feet as a business. And so actually being able to commit to your employee base, right, which is to say that's our mission is to, is to be a standalone business And so we were recruit, right, in phases rather than saying, hey, we got 40, let's just flood the market with people only to then having to pull right back. And we're seeing that in the market, you know, the public markets today are being pretty brutal to the folks who've just gone out there, got overexcited, spent a ton of money and now having to pull back. And I think, again, we're going through this normalization phase where, again, people having to remind themselves why it is you raise capital. It's not you don't raise capital because you're going to raise more capital later. You're supposed to be standing up a business. And and look, that's that's is is certainly a, an important piece of, of the pie, and that's also an important part of recruiting people. We we have been really lucky so far, and that you know we've now grown. I think pandemic. We started at twenty people. We're now sixty people. We'll be a hundred by the end of the year. We have suffered from almost no attrition in that phase. And and the more I talk to people, the more unusual that is. And so one of the big things I'm trying to do as I build the company is to create space for sharp individuals who don't necessarily fit the mold of the large corporate, right? It's, it's how do you allow individuality and how do you allow people to turn up as their best selves, but their best selves is not a mold. It is an individual because one of the biggest successes I felt I had inside of, of, of Amex in my 12 years there was building teams out of folks that wouldn't, You know, if you had to go and create an event of like, let's go and... Let's go to the bar or let's go and play this, this sporting activity or whatever it is. Half of people are like, what? Why are we doing this? And so everyone kept on getting pushed out of their comfort zones in that piece. And through that, you build really, really strong teams, actually, because you have lots of different points of view and perspectives. And I continue to ask for that because as we grow, I always say, look, it's about trust because and it's about trust in the people because you run through walls for people. You don't run through walls for a company. And so if we create the right culture around the right people, we will continue to grow. And, and look, I touch wood, I, I hope that that growth continues and we continue to have that, that low attrition because I think it talks back to the values right of the company and how we think about, about the business. And, and it's resonated with a lot of people, which I think has been very rewarding, certainly for, for us as, as founders.
0: Yeah, that's an incredible stat and an incredible accomplishment because I don't know I don't know any other company that that can be said said about at least where I know the founder, um, so that's incredible.
1: Last question: What has been the most fun part of this journey so far? I think the fun part of the journey is every day is, is a new day, right? It's like every day you're starting a new company almost, or at least the emotional roller coaster that comes with it. Right within one day, you can have the best news where you think you're set to go to the moon, and and within a few hours. Well, that dream got punctured because something broke fell over or a relationship turned sideways and it's really rewarding right it keeps you it keeps you on your toes every day and that sort of all in piece around it it's it's for me it's like being at, at the top of a sport right you you're just always connected you're always in the zone and it really means that you that you're sort of running along and really focused and and i I love that personally. I think that that focus is really compelling as an individual and you feel like you genuinely have skin in the game. And I think that's, that's something which I find incredibly, incredibly rewarding. And again, I try and instill that in, in, in the folks who join the team of look, you, you have stewardship ownership. I'm hiring you cause you have experience. And, and so I'm not here to run your show, your shop, right? Make sure it's yours. Like I will take your guidance because ultimately you should know better than what I do. And so empowering people and trusting people becomes a central part of the journey. And just seeing what, what we can actually achieve as a small team in a grand scheme of things, right? 60 people is not a lot of people. But you can move an awful lot of weight with 60 people if you're all pushing in the same direction.
0: Yeah. So well said. It's a perfect note to end on. So for anyone listening that wants to learn more about Extend, you can learn uh, more at paywithextend.com. And you can also follow Pay with Extend on Twitter. And I don't think, unless I miss something, Andrew, that you have a Twitter profile <laughs> that anyone could follow
1: no you are <laughs> not wrong um i'm constantly reminded uh, of that but look I, I think there's just you know for me the the, the usual channels of, of linkedin have worked really well and look our our team certainly has created right their own handles across across the business and i, and I like clean lines and and so yeah no i haven't over i, I don't want to over you know complexify my life i <laughs> I, I keep very narrow channels again because i'm old clearly
0: Well, no, you're you're just about incentives and alignment and, you know, it's just all, it's all about extend. Thank you so much for the time, Andrew. This has been so much fun.
1: No, thank you, Daniel. Really enjoyed the discussion. Cheers.
0: Thank you so much for listening. For links to everything we discussed, as well as the notes and transcript for this episode, visit outlayeracademy.com slash 100 at outlieracademy.com you can also find more incredible interviews with the founders of levels superhuman eight sleep rally common stock and so many other incredible companies you can now also find us on youtube at youtube.com slash on our channel you'll find all of our full-length interviews especially the video versions we've been doing for the past few months as well as our favorite short clips from every episode including this one so make sure to check out our youtube channel And if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Outlier Academy. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you right here next week on Outlier Academy.